Amen. Y'all are funny, man. Y'all just be clapping. You're like, this dude, you either really like it when I preach or you know that I preach shorter than James. One or the other. Um, so I'm going to be in my notes a lot today because there's a lot of cool things. Like he said, we're talking about marriage today, and we're not really in any series or anything. Uh, so James came to me and was like, hey, you're going to speak this day. I was like, okay, it's not a question anymore. Gotcha. And uh, he's like, I'm going to be out of town, so you're just a default guy. So default settings are checked. So uh, he's out of town. I'm going to be a lot of my notes because I have some stuff I, I want to talk about today, and uh, I wanna really want to make sure that I get this right. Um, I will say it's great to be up here, though, regardless of whether I'm default or not. Uh, I must have done a good enough job last time to be set as default, because usually there's like six months in between when I speak, and I only spoke like a couple weeks ago, so must be must be killing it, right? Um, but there's two things. Thank you. I appreciate that. There's two things, though, that I pray for, whether I'm preaching or uh, James is preaching or whoever's preaching that I, that I pray about every single week. And that's one is if you are here and you don't know Jesus, that today would be the day that you meet him, that you would meet him in some way that you've never met him before and that you would take that step and that you would journey with him. And two, if you've never met Jesus or if you have met Jesus but maybe you've stalled, that today would be the day where you could say, I'm not really sure, I don't know if I buy it, but I'm gonna come back. And so those are my, my prayers for you uh, today as we, as we begin this journey. So as we get into uh, what we wanna talk about today is, uh, he mentioned marriage, and we're gonna talk about that. Uh, but I wanna introduce you guys a little bit to myself uh, a little bit more, me and my wife. So some of you guys know us, some of you don't, but you don't know all of our story. So a brief history of it. Uh, my wife, Maricel, who's here in the front row, she's actually our family ministry director. So she is the point person when it comes to hanging out with your kids, which is great, yeah. Uh, right now, we have environments this morning for uh, ages zero through fifth grade, and, uh, but she oversees ages zero through 12th grade, technically, and so she was made for that. Uh, God created the perfect person in her to do that, and I'm excited to see uh, what she's doing when it comes to following Jesus. Uh, but Marisol and I, we met way back in good old 2007. Um, Okay, someone's excited for 2007, cool. Uh, it was a good year, it was a good year. I graduated high school that year, and I knew that was coming, yep. Graduated high school that year, and uh, going into the next year, so that summer, I was no longer a high school student, right? I was 18, and at the time, I was at a church where uh, James was a youth minister, and he led a college-age group at the time, and so I was like, well, I'm not in high school anymore, so I guess I should check this group out. So I went there. And uh, there's not much I remember about that one time, because I, th I think I only went once that summer. Um, so I went that one time, and I remember two things distinctly. One, there was some girl there who wasn't Maricel who was asking about my tattoo. I had one at the time, and it was annoying. Uh, and the other thing I remember is that Maricel was there, and so I was like, oh, I could probably come back to this group. That'd be great. Um, I didn't, though. I don't remember all that happened that summer. I know I was getting ready to go to college, and I eventually ended up going to Tennessee Temple University from 2007 to 2008 for my first year at college. That college doesn't exist anymore, so don't Google it. Uh, but I went there for my first year, and uh, we won't get into everything that happened at that year, because uh, there was a lot of nonsense. But the next year, uh, I felt like, you know what, I'm really supposed to be closer to home. I wanna be engaged in this group that I'm in, uh, and I wanna be engaged with the youth ministry that James was a part of at the time, and I really feel like that's where I'm supposed to be. Um, and also Maricel is here. So I'm gonna transfer to Roanoke Bible College, it's now Mid-Atlantic Christian University. It's down in Elizabeth City. 
And I went there, and in 2008, that was the year that Maricel and I uh, started dating. And then fast forward to 2012, we got married in 2012, and we got married at the Lesnar Inn right on Shore Drive, right over that big old bridge. So if you can do math, you know we've been married for a little bit over 10 years. Uh, and I will say right now, where we are in our marriage is the best it's ever been, and I love it. It's awesome. Uh, but if you're somebody who is married, you know that marriage can be a little bit rocky, right? That first 10 years, everybody told us like the first year is the hardest, and we did what every young couple does, ignored advice, and we went into it, and we were like, oh, they weren't kidding. The first year is really rough, and so we hit a lot of uh, bumps in the road. We had some really, really low lows. We had some heartbreaks, and uh, we've had some long nights and things like that. But I will say, looking back, there's been way more ups than downs. Uh, but it's also because we've done a lot of work together, right? We've learned how to communicate. We've learned how to speak to each other. We've learned the nuances of each other and some of the unsaid things that, that go between couples. Uh, we've learned actually what real intimacy likes, uh, looks like as well. And I'm not just talking about what you think I'm talking about, but real intimacy and it's never looked better. So I uh, love being married to Maricel. I can't imagine life without her and look forward to another 10 years, 20 years, 30, 50 years. Yeah. She's clapping because she's like, 50 years? Yeah. She's going to outlive me, so we'll see about the whole 50 years thing. Um, but I tell you guys this. Uh, I want you guys to know a little bit about me and where I come from and uh, our history. But when I think about this and I think about our journey and, and the stuff that we've gone through, uh, I wish... For so many people that I love and that I care about, that they would really understand what it's like to have a solid marriage founded on the very person who created it, right? We believe that God created marriage. And I wish that every married couple could understand that marriage will never be perfect. And if you're married, you understand that. But it can be more perfect, to borrow a phrase, right? You can continuously put work in. You can continuously do things to make your marriage more perfect. And that's by centering and founding your marriage on God, the one who created it. Because he also says some things that are true about you as an individual and as a married couple. And we can see this all the way back in the very beginning of Scripture. Uh, in Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, we get the creation story. Now, I'm not here today to tell you about whether or not it was a literal seven days. I'm not here to tell you about whether it was millions of years. I'm not going to tell you it's a science book. Probably not. I'm not going to tell you it's just poetry. Probably not. But what we can look at is we can look at the creation story and we can see what God was trying to do when it came to this idea of creating people as individuals, but also we see the very first marriage and what that marriage should look like and how that can relate to our marriages here and now in 2023. So we're going to start in Genesis. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, you can download one for free in the App Store. Uh, YouVersion is a free Bible. They've got almost every translation you can think of. And so if you want to read it in whatever language you're comfortable with, you can do it there. It's totally free. But YouVersion, Y-O-U version, look that up in the App Store and get you a Bible today. But we're going to start in Genesis. Genesis 2, verse 7. Says this, then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. By the way, I wrote this several weeks ago, and I did not know we were singing the song that we were singing this morning, uh, but that's what it's talking about. You breathe life into our lungs, right? 
I'm not gonna do this on every verse, by the way. We are gonna get through and we'll get out on time. So it's not gonna be one at a time. But in this verse, there's so much already that's packed. Uh, Prior to this verse, God had created everything. He created the lights, the stars, the earth, the animals, the insects, all of those things by speaking them into existence. And then we get to this moment in creation where God says, hey, we're gonna make man in our own image and I'm going to get down on my hands and knees and I'm going to fold and mold and create this being. And instead of just speaking him into existence, I get to make him with my hands and breathe ruach. Ruach is this Hebrew word for spirit and breath. It's the same word. So God breathes his ruach, his spirit, into our lungs. So right in the beginning of these verses, you can see there's something different about humanity. There's something different about this piece of creation, man, versus the rest of creation. He didn't take that time with anything else. So he breathed his spirit into us. And this is important because it puts us at a different level than the rest of creation. So we're gonna keep going. Fast forward a little bit, Genesis 2, 18 through 20. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. Now, when you read this, this is an odd series of events, right? So the first section of it talks about, it's not good for man to be alone, I'll make a helper suitable for him. Name some animals. That's a weird kind of transition for God to make, like, hey, there's nobody that looks like you, and, and you kind of see that already, but I want you to name all these animals. So you don't have anybody. Uh, so God talks to Adam, says, hey, I realize that there's not anybody that's on the same level as you, so what you're gonna do is you're gonna go through, and you see these guys right here? I need you to pick a name for that chameleon. My bad, gave you that one already. That's an easy one. I need you to name that hippopotamus. Okay, hippopotamus is fine. Just, just figure out what these things are called. Do all that. Parade all these things. But he just talked about, I can't find a helper. So, so Adam goes through, and he does this, and he's naming all the animals, and he sees them go one by one by one, and he's naming them and giving them all the names, and he realizes there's, there's really nobody else here like me. Like, if I was going to get hitched to something, I'm not even sure what that is because I'm the first man, probably wouldn't be to a platypus, right? It's not going to work. So it's just this weird series of events, and it says what? It says no suitable helper was found. And I think one of the main points of this story, again, we're a different level of creation. God breathed his spirit into us. And the other thing that he's doing here is he's showing Adam, hey, I want you to take note. You're at a different level. Human beings are not beasts. Big part of this story is what it means to be human. It's about Adam. Look, it's not good for you to be alone, but you're not an animal. I've got to teach you that you're not an animal. You're not going to have to work like an animal. You're going to get to rest unlike an animal. You are different from everything that I have created thus far, and I need you to understand how crucial you are to me. You're at a different level. Being human means you're not an animal. So we keep moving forward. Genesis 2, 21 through 24. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping... He took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. 
The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. So there's a ton of stuff that's packed into this story, right? And it could take us all day to actually get into all the nuances and things like that, but I've got a little bit under an hour, so I'm going to try and wrap it up. So we see at the beginning, God says, hey, I'm going to make man. He makes man, does it differently than anybody, any other part of the creation, right? He gets on his hands and knees, molds him, folds him, creates this human being, breathes his breath right into him, his spirit right into him. Then he says, hey, Adam, uh, it's not good for you to be alone. I need you to name all these animals. Hey, these animals don't actually do it for you. So he puts him to sleep, pulls out a rib, and then he creates Eve. Except it doesn't say Eve in these verses. What does it, what does it say? It says, did it ever mention her as, as Eve? No, it didn't. It said woman. Adam named her woman. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. The Hebrew word that's used here in these verses for male is ish. You say that? Ish. Going to get some Hebrew lessons. Ish. The Hebrew word for woman in these verses is isha. So you have ish, and you have isha. Ish comes first. Isha follows. This is a direct correlation. She is directly related to Adam. Now, when we read these verses a little bit earlier, there's a phrase in there that some of you may have been offended by in the past. Some people might still get offended. Some people don't fully understand what it means. And the reason that sometimes people get offended at this is because the English translation that we have is not always the best translation. Remember, the Bible wasn't written in English. It was written in Hebrew to a Hebrew audience. And so to get the full meaning out of it, we have to go back into some of that. But one of the words that is used here, depending on the translation that you see, is that God says, I'll make for Adam a helper, right, or a helpmate. And this can sometimes taint our view of women based on how we read that for some people, right? But that's not the case. Here's what it actually means. It's a bad translation. So the Hebrew phrase here is a cool phrase, etzer konegdo. Etzer konegdo. If you don't remember anything else, remember that. Etzer konegdo. Cool phrase, right? Etzer means help, and konegdo means against or opposition. She is the help that comes against him or the help that opposes. The picture of Isha, the picture of the woman here is that it wasn't good for humanity to be alone, for man to be alone because in order for humanity to thrive, there has to be some tension. And so God creates that tension by pulling a piece out of Ish and creating Isha. So who is Isha? Isha, the woman, is now the missing piece to man. Man is now incomplete without Isha. And this is a picture of humanity. It's also a picture of a marriage and what that looks like. Man is not complete without woman. Humanity is not complete if it's just man. If it's just a bunch of men in the room, you don't have a picture of humanity and what that looks like. If it's just a bunch of men, you don't have the full image of God because man and woman together create one piece. It's only when male and female together make what we have to be humanity. She is the help 
that opposes. And there's one thing that we find in marriage, and if you've been married for a while, then you may be familiar with this concept of uh, the wife opposes us, right? But in her opposition, she is our greatest help. And here's what I mean. When uh, rabbis in the Hebrew tradition would teach about this subject, what they would teach about is the two planks, okay? So in your head, picture two two-by-fours. You've got one two-by-four. If you stand that up by itself, it's gonna fall every single time, right? Depending on which way it's going, it's gonna fall because it won't stand on its own. But when you bring that second plank up and you put them together and they make this pyramid, this triangle form, those two planks together are working together in opposition to help stand each other up and to build a foundation. This is what God was doing in this creation story is he makes man, pulls a piece out of him to make woman, and so now without the two together, humanity can't thrive. There is no tension. If one plank is up by itself, it's gonna fall over. It doesn't have that opposition. It's missing a piece. In marriage, that other person is the part of me that I am missing. So only together are we the full picture. And when they come against your design, they support you. This is the picture of marriage that's painted for us in this creation story. But if you've been in churches for any amount of time, or you've heard this story before about Adam and Eve, right? Usually we just assume that Eve is the name right from the beginning. You hear this story, and so you get to this point, and it's all nice, and it's great, and they're walking around naked and chilling and everything, and it's fantastic. But then you fast forward a little bit, and there's a snake that shows up, and somehow that snake can talk, and Eve decides to listen to the snake for whatever reason, but her husband's right there with her, like, yeah, that's fine, okay, great. And they eat some fruit, the fruit they're not supposed to eat, and they get kicked out of Eden, and then something interesting happens. It's when they get kicked out that something different takes place. So yeah, they've already had the sin enter the world and everything, and that's kind of been a different experience. And I don't know how many other animals could talk, but a talking snake sounds like a different experience too. But something unique happens when it comes to the relationship between Adam and Eve. And if you've been in church for any amount of time, because I've missed this too, this is, this is really interesting. So um, earlier in the story, man gives a woman a name, right? Isha. Ish names Isha. She is Isha. She's bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She is woman. But in Genesis 3, chapter 20, it says this, Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. He already gave her a name. He named her Isha. See, Isha speaks to who she is. Isha speaks to her essence. Isha, the peace that is missing from me. This is how you were created. This is who you were created to be. But then after sin enters the world, after the fall, after they do what they aren't supposed to and they're kicked out of the garden, it's almost like his view of her changes. And he doesn't see her for who she is but what she can do. Because he names her Eve, why? Because she would become the mother of all the living. See, before the fall, Adam sees her not for what she can produce, not for what she can do for him, 
Not for the fact that she's a birthing machine that she's put on this planet to produce offspring, but he sees her for who God has created her to be, and he names her as such, and he holds her with this high value and this high view. You are the piece that is missing from me. And then the fall happens, and that view completely changes to almost, what can she do? And is that valuable to me? And Adam names her out of that. Now, her identity doesn't change. God still sees her for who she is and who she was created to be. Her actual identity doesn't change, but Adam has placed a new identity on her and operates out of that mindset. And I think for a lot of us in this room, maybe you're watching online, maybe you're listening in a podcast later, there are a ton of marriages that are not experiencing the marriage that is defined in the Garden of Eden. There are a ton of marriages who you're looking at your spouse and you're saying, well, what value are you up to me? What can you do for me? How are you helping me? And we stop viewing our spouse as the missing piece of me, right? And we start looking at them for, well, yeah, but they're just not doing anything for me. And it taints our view of what scripture tells us is the missing piece, right? Your spouse, if we're to take this imagery presented to us in the very beginning of scripture, literally, which I do, your spouse is the missing piece of you that makes you complete in that spiritual sense. And you are no longer your own, but you are one being, one entity, one team, the full image of God. You both bear his likeness. You both bear his image. And now you represent the fullness of humanity. And instead of looking to see what your spouse can do for you, we should be seeing them as God has called them to be. And when we do that, when we change our view and see them as the missing piece of me, then not only am I gonna say, wow, you're my missing piece and I'm gonna hold you in this high view, but now I'm gonna say, well, what can I do for you See, I'm not gonna place value on you for what you can do. I'm gonna place value on you because of who you are, and as a result, I'm gonna wanna do things for you versus waiting for you to do things for me. And I think in churches, I can't speak to this for all churches, but I think Church Capital C hasn't really done a great job of really explaining this process. And there's all kinds of marriage classes and things like that that they do on the side, but I think speaking from stage on marriage is a huge thing that we should do way more often because marriages are hurting. I know it, I see it, I talk to people on a regular basis of people who are like, man, I I just wish my marriage was different. And they don't even see better, they just want it to be different because they know that it's not good here. And the church hasn't done a good job. And I wanna, kind of show you a little bit about why that might be. And uh, here's one of the things that I think people get wrong, and some churches get wrong, and maybe you even heard this too, Um, but people who've been in church for a long time have heard things about church and about women and about how church can sometimes be anti-women, and this woman should be in this like lesser role, and it's not true at all, but here's where they get that from, right? Ephesians 5, 22 through 24 says this, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as the Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Submit. Do it. Says so. Scripture. Right? Pretty self-explanatory. The wife's supposed to submit. Right? Yep. 
You have to hold on. Wait. Got to read the whole thing, right? You know what you missed? You missed the verse right in front of it. 521 through 24. Boom. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Oh. You're supposed to both submit. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife. So we just read that, right? Submit to one another. So who submits in the relationship? Both of them. Congrats. Yes, the wife's supposed to submit, but so is the husband. You submit to each other. And listen, I've talked about this before. I can't remember if it's been from stage or not, but submission, submit, is this weird word in English society where we, we just like, ugh, it's a dirty word. It's not a dirty word. It's an amazing word. When you submit to something, you're putting yourself sub to the mission. So whatever that mission is, you're going to say, hey, that, that's where I need to go. That's what we're all about. I'm going to do that and everything I can to make that happen. When it comes to your marriage, that's your spouse. Your spouse is your mission. So you put yourself below your spouse. That's all submission is. And you get this. You see this in your jobs. You see this in if you're involved in a sport or something like that. It's not about you. It's about the team. It's about the goal at the end. When it's about you, you fail. Because you're in it for yourself. And look, here's how that verse continues. Ephesians 5, 25 through 28. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. This whole verse right here is talking about how to lift your wife higher than you. But somehow we still get it wrong. And we still read what we want to read. And we see what we want to see. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Submit to one another. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, submit to your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, submit to your wives. Do you see how it keeps going in a circle right here? Right? It's give and give. It's not give and take. Right? Being married to someone is not about what they can do for you. It's about what you can do for them. When you marry someone, you sign up to put them before you, above you on a daily basis. You continually put yourself last to make sure they are propped up, not because of what they do for you, but because of who they are. They are your missing piece. They are the piece that completes you. They are the help that pushes against you to make you better. I, I didn't write this down, but I was thinking about this this morning, um, and this idea of, of it being a circle. And I just, I just think this is crucial for us to get, right? Husbands, you should want to do everything in your power to lift up your wives, to show her love and show her care and show her respect because your wife does everything in her power to show you that she trusts you, that she loves you, that she cares about you because husbands, you are watching them and you are raising them, uh, raising them above yourself and seeing the value that they have, not what they do, because wives, you are continuously seeing what your husband does, self-sacrifice to make sure that the family is propped up, make sure that you are propped up. It's a circle. 
It's on and on. Hey, I'm going to do whatever I can. I'm going to place her above myself. I'm going to place him above myself. Whatever that means. Because here's the thing. You know how many times I've heard people talk about stuff they argue about? It's so dumb. I'm included in that. We do this all the time, right? If you put a bowl in the dishwasher the wrong way, that's not the end of the world. That's stupid. Let's call it for what it is. Let's not fight about some dumb stuff. And here's how that works, right? I want to paint you a picture. So let's say, ladies, your man puts something in the dishwasher, and he puts it in the wrong way. It's a bowl, and it's up, and it should be on the other side, right? I agree with you. But he puts it in there. He's doing his best. He puts it in the dishwasher. You pull it out. You notice, hey, this was wrong to me. You got two responses. One, you can get mad about it, and then you can uh, not talk to him for a while, uh, and then you guys can have a big argument about it, and then maybe you don't even sleep together in the same room, right? Or you could say, that's a bowl in the dishwasher. I like my marriage a lot. I like sleeping together. I like not arguing. I like having good communication with them. So maybe I won't do that. And maybe there's a third option. Maybe you go to them and you say, hey, not a big deal. I noticed that when you put this in the dishwasher, it was like this. Do you mind flipping that over? Now, husbands, now it's on you. You got a couple of responses, right? You can say, oh, here we go again. She's going to nag me on everything. I'll, every time I do anything, I was already trying to help by doing the dishwasher in the first place, and now she don't like how I do it, so I'm not going to do it at all. That's a response you can take, okay? You're not going to sleep with your wife in any sense that you're thinking about. You're going to be in the doghouse, not going to talk to her for a while. For what? For a bowl in the dishwasher? Or you can say, oh, cool, thanks, I didn't know that. I'll do that for you next time. I see it's important to you because it was important enough for you to bring it up to me in the first place, and so I'm going to respect that and honor that, and I'm going to do what you asked me to do. It's both and. You both have a choice to respond to how that bowl is in the dishwasher. And if it gets brought up, you both have a choice to respond to how it was brought up. But it's a team effort. You got to push against each other a little bit, but it's to support and be centered and founded on God who created you both as individuals and now has brought you together. And in marriage, this mystical thing has happened to where you are now the same person. You are one. You are each other's missing piece. Husbands, without your wives, you're not complete. Wives, without your husbands, you're not complete. You guys are the same. You're one. Same team. Team dishwasher. Whatever it is, right? So whatever you've got going on, the mission is your marriage. It's your spouse. My hope and prayer is that you can say, I would submit to that. Forget all these things you've heard about submitting being a dirty word. Forget all these things you've heard about the church is anti-women, it's this, that, and the other, whatever. Who cares about that stuff? The mission is each other. You put each other above yourself. And by the way, let me give you a little hint into what real intimacy looks like. Real intimacy looks like serving your spouse. Serving your spouse. Not because of what they do, but because of who they are. Serving your spouse, doing something for them that you know can take something off of their plate, even if it adds more to yours. 
and it goes both ways. This isn't a call out to men. It's not a call out to, to women. It's to both. We've got to get this right because I'm so heartbroken, right? I am heartbroken to hear about the amount of marriages right now that are just getting by. It breaks my heart. That's not what you were created for. That's not what your spouse was created for. And when you stood at the altar, and guys, when you saw her come down the lane, the aisle, whatever it is, and you cried, and you did, you either hit it well or you didn't, but you cried, and you saw her come up, and then you're standing there, and you guys are holding hands and looking at each other, and you're exchanging rings. I guarantee you what didn't go through your head was, man, I can't wait to argue about dishwasher. You had this whole vision for your life and your marriage and how it was going to turn out, and now it looks different. Guess what? Welcome to life. But you can work on those differences. You can communicate. And by the way, getting help is fine. If you need help, join a club. Everybody needs some kind of help with that. There's no shame in that. But we can do a better job. My hope for all the married couples in here today is they can go back to the Garden of Eden. Oh, and also when it comes to serving, by the way, another real intimate thing to do is serve in the church together. Serve in the church together. Men, if your wife is serving and you're not, step up. Step up. Be here. Get here. Serve. Ladies, if your husband is serving and you're not, eh, step up. You're both getting called out. Step up. Serve together. Even if you're not even fully, like, I, don't, I really don't know, but it's important to your wife, to your husband. You say, it's important to you. Got you. I'm going to do that because I'm going to place you above myself, and I'm going to continuously place you above myself. I will crawl through glass, lava, you name it. If it means that you don't have to step on any of that, I'll lay down so you can walk across my back and do that. That's what it means to be married. And husbands, we're the ones that are called in Scripture, by the way, to die. You know how Christ loved the church? He died for them. In that verse we just read, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. He died for the church. So are you willing to put down your life for your wife? I hope all married couples here today and future married couples can have a marriage that looks like that marriage that was created in the Garden of Eden. Seeing each other not for what we can do, but you would see your spouse with such a high view that you would call your spouse as God calls them. You would live a life of service to your spouse and you would love them the same way that God loves his children. You'd be willing to come here in human form and die a death that we deserve so that we could have that relationship with him. We're gonna do communion here in a moment. It's something that we do every single Sunday. And I know for some people out there, this is probably a, sometimes it's just a moment where you get a little snack. I've been in church for a long time since I was a kid. I know. For some people, this goes right by you and you open the thing and you pop it back and you got a little piece of cracker juice. It's not that great of a snack, but you know, you do you. 
But there's so much more to this than just having a little crinkly snack. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm being goofy, but this is a moment where we get to remember that sacrifice that Jesus made for us. And you can picture that however you want. If for you, picture in, you know, Jim Caviezel up on the cross in the Passion of the Christ as a way that you do it. I don't, that's fine, you know. But what is it where you can actually take this moment and remember what Jesus has done for you? When was that moment real for you? That you believed that there was a real human being who was fully God, who lived a life that we could never live, a perfect life, shameless life, who died a shameful death that he did not deserve, but he died it in our place so that we could have life and have it to the full here and now, not just later on in heaven. When he died on the cross, you could have a life to the full. He didn't die so that you could have a marriage where you get mad at each other about who did the dishwasher or who took out the trash or who forgot to, I don't know, you name it. Yes, those things, you can communicate about those, you know, and get on the same page and that's fine, but it ain't worth your marriage. Jesus didn't die for that. Jesus died so you could have a marriage to the full. So you could lift each other up. And you could celebrate together what Jesus has done for both of you. So during this time, I'm going to pray. Then they're going to sing a song. And you can take communion whenever, by the sound of it. Some of you already have. But take this time to just reflect and think that there was somebody who died, who loved you. And God, Jesus being God, I believe that he was able to think of all people's faces all at the same time, including yours as he hung up on that cross. And he knew, I'm dying so that you can have the life I want you to live. A life that looks more like the life described in the creation story. God, thank you so much for who you are, for what you've done, and God, for what you're gonna do. God, I pray that people today who are struggling in their marriage, would say, you know what, today's it. I'm gonna do whatever it takes. I don't wanna have a marriage like the one I have right now. I wanna have a marriage like I dreamed of, like the one that's described in scripture. I pray that they would be inspired, that they would be challenged, and they would know that you're right alongside with them, God. God, I pray for anybody in here who's considering getting married, looking to hopefully one day get married, that they would look for these kind of things in a spouse. Somebody who loves Jesus more than they love them. God, I also want to pray for anybody in here who feels called out, maybe that their marriage didn't work out the way they thought it would, and it's over. That you're a God of resurrection, you're a God of second chances. They don't have to live in that shame. They don't have to live with that guilt, because you died for that. You died so that you could have a life and have it to the full. God, I pray for everyone in here that they would remember you, that they would focus on you, and they would live a life that you've called them to live and journey with you. It's your name we pray. Amen.